morning. Good morning. Good morning. I love that poem. I'm here to tell you this morning that you are priests. You are priests. That may sound a little bit odd to you this morning. We often don't think of ourselves as priests. We in the Protestant tradition think that priests are a thing that belong to a different tradition. But that's not actually what Scripture says. Scripture tells us that you are priests. This idea of the priesthood comes from the book of Leviticus, and we see it carried all the way through Scripture, and it is what I want to look at this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8. Now, what we've been doing in this series as we've gone through the book of Leviticus, we're calling this series Eating with the Word. And the idea has kind of been that if you were to invite Jesus over, each step in the course of that evening would be a different one of the books that we're studying. And so the book of Leviticus is kind of the the beginning part, the setting up, the details Right, getting, getting the home in order, setting the table, getting ready. Because Leviticus is certainly a book about details. And sometimes that can, can make it hard for us or kind of make it intimidating for us to read. One of our hopes, Pastor Ben's and mine, have been as we go through this series that Leviticus might not be quite as foreign to you at the end of the series as it was at the beginning, our hope that you might come to find it as beneficial as we have. Today is the last day that we're going to be in Leviticus during this series. We'll start Numbers next week. So we're diving into this idea at the core of the book, the priesthood, Leviticus chapter 8. And go ahead also, I want to ask you to go ahead and, and open up and put a finger or a piece of paper or something to mark the space in Hebrews Chapter 9, we're going to kind of go between the two chapters today. Leviticus chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to start by reading the first four verses of Leviticus 8. The Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron and his sons, their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket containing bread made without yeast, and gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now remember, the Israelites were terrified by God's presence. In the book of Exodus, when the presence of God comes to them at Mount Sinai, they are terrified, and they ask to never have to be that near to him again. They wanted him to be with them. They wanted the blessing and the promise that came with their God traveling along with them, but they didn't want to deal with him directly. They wanted an intercessor, someone to go before God on their behalf, to be sort of a mediator between God and his people. And that's where the office of high priest comes from. Now the word priest comes from a pair of Greek words that mean to go before. 
Now, that may sound simple, but it isn't. There's actually quite a bit there. And the reason it's not simple is because that word before is actually a little bit complicated. Here's what I mean. Imagine a pair of young boys, brothers, and together they're playing and they break mom's good china. And she's on the other end of the house, so she's not aware of this yet. And now those boys, they have a decision to make. They know that if mom discovers this, she's going to know it was them and they're going to be in a lot more trouble than they'll be if they tell her. But there's no point in both of them having to face down her wrath. And so they have a decision to make. One of them is going to go before the ruler of the house and confess the misdeed. Now, a lot of times we think of the older brother in the priest role, right? Because he's older. He comes before in time. And while there's not nothing to that, there's something there, there's definitely a benefit to the wisdom and maturity that comes with age, that's not what the idea of a priest is. It's the older brother saying, I'll go and tell mom, and standing before her to confess the misdeed on behalf of himself and his little brother. And we all know what he would say. He'd tell his little brother, you don't need to come along, and then he'd say to his mom, you'll never believe what my little brother did. No, but this idea of the priest is someone who goes before the Lord, who goes before him, to him, and confesses and represents the people to God, and then represents God to the people. That's what being a priest is. So you can imagine, the people are pretty excited here in Leviticus chapter 8. I mean, their God is dwelling with them. And now there's going to be someone for all time who will go before God on their behalf. Because this wasn't just an Aaron thing. The priesthood was set up to pass from father to son with a promise that there would always be a priest for the people. And so, verse 5. Moses said to the assembly, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. So Moses at this point has been kind of filling the role of high priest. But if you remember at the beginning of his story, way back at the beginning of Exodus, he's standing before God in a cave and speaking to a burning bush. And he's told to go and he asks over and over and over again, God, please Send someone else. And eventually God says, yes, your brother Aaron will take the place. So while Moses was there, Aaron did most of the communicating with Pharaoh. In other words, Aaron takes on the role of priest while Moses fills it in. Fills in. At this point on, Aaron will be the high priest. Then verse 6. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. You know, we, we, we have this command as we become Christians to be baptized. And we don't really question it because it's a command from the Lord. He tells us to be washed with water as we enter into his kingdom, right? That's part, one of the first things Christians are called on to do is to consider being baptized. Have you ever wondered why? 
It's not like God actually physically needs you to be washed with water, but it represents something. It represents the washing away of sin. But it does more than that, too. It connects us to something. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're told we are priests. And the first thing a priest does when they become a priest in the book of Leviticus is they're washed with water. They're put under the water and made clean. And the reason for this here, the reason why it was so important for the priests to be washed clean is that their holiness was vital. The priests needed to be holy because they represented God's people before him. Imagine. Imagine that there was one person who was going to be representing you before God. One person who could enter into the most holy place, the holy of holies, could actually walk into God's presence and represent you to him. I think you'd really want that person to have their act together, right? This is the one who's representing you before God. You'd really want that person to be a good representative. And so the people were very motivated to encourage the high priest to be holy, so much so that before he had some special duty, whether it was on a festival day or some other time, there would often be a person assigned to keep the high priest awake all night so that he didn't, in his dreams, sin and and be unfit to go before the Lord. Could you imagine having that job, that, that volunteer opportunity, right? Your job is just to keep some poor person awake all night, whether they want you to or not. I think that 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 makes sense on one hand, and on the other hand, I imagine you have a grumpy high priest every time he's needed. But his holiness, his fitness to go before the Lord is vitally important because he represents all of God's people. So they begin by washing him, symbolically cleansing away the pollution of death and sin. It's a picture. And the Old Testament especially is full of these pictures, these symbols. So, verse 7 and 8, or I'm sorry, just verse 7. He put the tunic on Aaron. That's Moses. He put the tunic on Aaron. He tied the sash around him. He clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him. He also fastened the ephod with a decorative waistband, which he tied around him. So to understand the importance of the high priest, we have to understand something about the tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle, this tent that they made, was the dwelling place of God. It was this place where heaven and earth overlapped. A lot of times we think of heaven as far away, and that's not what the Bible says. The heaven is wherever God is. And in places like the tabernacle or the temple, where God dwelled, heaven and earth overlapped. There was something special about that sacred space. And to kind of communicate the high priest's role, they took thread from the tabernacle. There was all this blue and purple thread that was hard to come by, and it symbolized royalty and power. And it was woven throughout the tabernacle, and they used that same thread to make the high priest's garments. 
communicating both his importance and also that he was connected in some way to this overlap of heaven and earth. And we have a picture actually of what he would have looked like based on the descriptions. It's kind of a fancy get-up. I think that Pastor Ben and I should start doing something like this on Sunday mornings. That'd get everyone's attention, I imagine. And so this is what the high priest would look like. And you see, you see the blue and you see the purple there. The symbolism is powerful. This is a person who's connected to the place where God dwells. There's actually this letter I want to read just a small part of that was written in the ancient world by a man named Aristeus to his brother as he's describing the high priest. He says this, It was an occasion of great amazement to us when we saw Eleazar, that's the high priest, engaged in his ministry and all the glorious vestments. Their appearance makes one awestruck and dumbfounded, a man would think he had come out of this world and into another one. The idea is that the high priest is a mediator. He stands between God and his people, one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. So then, moving on, verses 8 and 9. He placed the breastpiece on him and put the Urim and Thummim in the breastpiece. Then he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred emblem, on front of it, as the Lord commanded Moses. So we have a couple of pictures of what these specific parts of the high priest's clothing looked like. And we're not just going through them because they're fancy and they look neat. There's a deep symbolism, a powerful picture to every part of what the high priest wore. This is the diadem, or the crown, that sat on top of the high priest, that was on his head. And it says, that, oh, it says there, holy to the Lord, in Hebrew. And that idea of holiness is central to the high priest, because we know and we've heard that God is holy, and we've heard that we're called to be holy as well. God's holiness is this idea that he's utterly and completely unique. The word holy literally means something else. If you think you have a handle on what exactly God is, he's something else. He's different than any other thing that exists. Completely unique. He's holy. And when his people or a thing are called holy, what that means is that their purpose is specially attributed or given to God. They have a special purpose for the Lord. Right? So everything belongs to Him, but, but when a thing is dedicated, devoted, given to Him, it becomes holy. It's purposed for God's work. And so the high priest wears, in a way that everyone could see, that he belongs to Yahweh. His ministry, his life, his purpose, everything is about the Lord's calling and the Lord's work. So that's the crown that sits on his head. Next we have these bells. 
And this is connected to holiness too, because the holiness of God isn't just an otherness. Because the, the, the world, all of creation were made to be holy. You and I were made to be holy. But because of the fall, the world was not holy. And when a holy God and an unholy world come into contact, bad things happen. We have these stories throughout Scripture where a person would die because they came into contact with God's presence when they weren't fit to do so. And so what the high priest would do is he would wear these bells on the bottom of his tunic because he had all these rituals to become clean when he would go into the Holy of Holies that one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And you can imagine all the people and, and all the stake they have in this. They would want to make sure he's clean, he's washed, he goes through the sacrifices for his own sin and his family's sin. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. But what if we missed something? What if we, we were not following the Lord's commands closely enough and the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and he's not fit to do so and he dies? So they put bells on him so they could hear him walking around because if he walked into the Holy of Holies to spray the blood, to clean out the pollution of death and sin, and he was not fit to, and he died, they'd stop hearing the bells. So they would tie a rope around his ankle in case he went into the Holy of Holies and died so they could pull him out because no one could go in to retrieve him. So this is a sign, not just of the promise of, of holiness that God offers his people, but also for the seriousness of holiness. God's holiness was not something to play around with. The next part of clothing I want to talk about here is the breastplate. Now this gold breastplate would fit on the chest of the priest. And each gem in it was different. There are 12. Does anyone, get, does anyone want to guess what the 12 gems stood for? 12 tribes of Israel. There were four rows of three gems. Each one a different kind of gem. Each one representing a different tribe. Can you imagine how rare and valuable this would have been in the ancient world? How important to the Israelites. The high priest has to wear this during every single festival to do his work. In fact, this was so important to the Israelites, to the, to the Jewish people, that one of the ways that the Romans, when they, when they conquered Israel, one of the ways that they just showed their dominance is they kept the, the priestly garments, and especially the breastplate, under guard in the praetorium. So every time the Jewish people had need for their high priest to do special work, they had to go to a man named Pontius Pilate and ask to be able to get the high priestly garments and the breastplate, just as a reminder that they were under the yoke of the Romans, and they knew the Jewish people would always come because of how vital this was, and here's why. The breastplate symbolizing God's people mean that every time the high priest goes in to do his work, he's taking all of God's people with him. He goes before the Lord in prayer and he brings the people with him. 
They are brought before the Lord's presence over and over again because the high priest carries them with him. And we all understand this. When we pray for someone else, they come before the Lord with us. So the high priest would represent the people with the breastplate, but then he would represent the Lord with something called the Urim and Thummim. Now this is not what they looked like. Those are just two stones that say in Hebrew, Urim and Thummim. These these items are mentioned a few times throughout Scripture, but we're never actually told what they are. There's some tool to be able to discern the will of God. Some people think that they were like bones that you could throw to get a yes or no answer, kind of like dice. Some people think that they were stones that lit when God was telling yes or no to a question, but they were some way for God's people to discern his will. And the high priest wore them behind the breastplate. In other words, while he represented the people coming before God, he represented God speaking back to the people. The high priest's role was so, so important. He's holy, dedicated to the Lord. He goes before him representing God's people and comes back representing God to the people. And this was all the story told by his clothing. So what was his job? What was his main purpose? We've already mentioned his role in the festivals, but other things that the priests and the high priest in particular did. He was a teacher. He taught the law and what it meant. He taught about what God had done, was doing, and would do. He also was called to live this life of holiness as an example to others. This is how a God who's holy wants his people to live. And then he had this job to clear out, to oversee the sacrifices and to clear out the pollution of death and sin. In other words, to oversee the putting right of God's people and creation. You see, when, when, when the, the, the death and the sin are removed, what's left is the creation as God intended it, ready to be made holy. And his job was to oversee that, to be part of that. And then he had this special role on the Day of Atonement. We talked about this briefly last week. We talked about the two goats. We talked about it in Sunday school as well. There would be two goats on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the most important day of the Jewish year. And one goat would come and would be sacrificed. It was his blood spread in the Holy of Holies to clean it. But then there was this other goat called the scapegoat. And what the high priest would do is he would, he would put his hands on the goat And all the people would come close to be able to see. We're talking about thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people. Later on, when it was a temple and not a tabernacle, it would be hundreds of thousands of people crowding around to see. Can you imagine the excitement, the hope? Because they believed that in this day of atonement, all the sin that had gone unrepented of, all the sin that they'd forgotten to ask forgiveness for, all of it, would be placed on the goat. And that seems weird to us. I know it does. I mean, can you imagine 
A group of people that believe that sin could be taken off of them and placed on another. That's us. This goat, they believed, truly received the sinfulness that they had accumulated, the guilt that they had accumulated, the pollution of death that they had accumulated, and it was put on him. And then the high priest was in charge of finding someone to send the goat out. Because once that goat is full of your sin and the pollution of death, you don't want him in the camp anymore, right? You want your sin taken away so that you can live near a holy God without fear. All of this was the role of the high priest. Now, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to skip around just a little bit here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The old covenant had a tabernacle. And then he describes how it was set up. And then skipping down to verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. In other words, the room outside of the Holy of Holies. Outside of it. The priests often went in there to do the work of the sacrifices and the ministry for God's people. But only the high priest entered the inner room. And that only once a year. That's the Day of Atonement. And never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, the most holy place is the holy of holies. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. In other words, God's people as a whole could not come in to his presence. Imagine the fear of that. God is here, but if I get too close, I'll be struck down because I'm not clean. I'm not holy. I'm not fit to draw near to God. In Isaiah 6, the song that we sang earlier, that's Isaiah's fear. He wakes up and he's in the throne room of God. And he looks up and he sees God on his throne. Could you imagine? And in his, his amazement, he expresses, woe to me, I'm ruined because I'm unclean and I've come from an unclean people. And God provides a way for atonement to be made for him so that he can be there. Can you imagine living near God and not being able to go to him directly? Verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. In other words, all of this, the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, all of them were pointing forward to Jesus. All of them were saying, they were pictures 
pointing forward to the time when God would provide the sacrifice and the covering that's needed for forgiveness and intimacy with him. And then verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. Remember, the tabernacle is this overlap between heaven and earth. It's almost like it's a small picture of a greater tabernacle. In Revelations chapter 4 and 5, there's this, there's this image, this vision that the Apostle John receives. And as you look through the things that he sees, as he gets this glimpse into heaven, they look like giant versions of the furniture of the tabernacle, almost as though the tabernacle is a small version of a much greater heavenly reality. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus is our high priest, but a high priest in a way that's different from the ones ever before. Different than Aaron and his sons. Because you see, the, the sacrifices offered by Aaron and his sons had to be repeated year after year after year. They were temporary. But Jesus comes along and he functions as the high priest. He functions as the sacrificial goat. And he's the scapegoat as well. It's his blood that brings forgiveness. And he takes our sin away. But because he's God in the flesh, this isn't a sacrifice that has to ever be repeated. It's once for all. And those who belong to him have their sins completely forgiven. And you remember what happened when he died, right? The curtain in the temple that celebrates or that separates the place where the priest normally came to do work on a daily basis. And that holy of holies, that curtain rips down the middle so that God's people would always be able to come before him. That they would know they never again needed someone to stand between them and God because they had been made clean. They had been forgiven. Their consciences could be clear. We think of ourselves often as sinners. And we're not wrong. We are people who struggle with sin. But this verse tells us that that's actually an incorrect, improper way for us to think of ourselves. Because when God looks at us, he does not see our sin. He sees Jesus. He does not see our faults and our flaws. Those aren't the things that immediately come to him. He sees us forgiven, covered over, made whole. Now he knows our struggles and he knows our temptations and he helps us in the midst of them. 
but our sins are forgiven. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling because you don't feel good enough. Maybe you feel like it makes sense that God accepts and loves and treasures every other person, but you, you just know that there's something thoroughly rotten about you. And you wonder, does God really love me? Has God really forgiven me? The answer is yes. Maybe you're here today and you're holding on to something. You're holding on to something that you know God wants you to let go. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's a wound. Maybe it's a struggle that you've just never been able to let go of. Because the way you see yourself is wrong. What if we saw ourselves as God does? We might find it easier to forgive. We might find it easier to let go. We might find it easier to let the Holy Spirit transform us and overcome what we're struggling with. If that's you today, I want to challenge you. I want to call you to know that the Lord looks at you and sees His Son, His daughter, made perfect by the blood of Christ. You have no need to fear, to feel shame when you go to Him. He loves, forgives, and accepts you. Now that's amazing. But it gets even better. You see, this idea of the high priest that Jesus fulfills, He doesn't stop being the high priest. He, he rests. He's not offering sacrifices year after year any longer, but he's still here. He's still at work. He's still teaching about God's word and God's actions. He's still overseeing the putting right of God's creation, whether it's people or the world itself. But he doesn't do it in the same way as he did for those three amazing years that he was here in a body. Because his body now is you and me. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says that we are a royal priesthood. That means that we are adopted, made sons and daughters of the king. You are royalty. And your priest. He wants to do his work through you. So the work that he does in people's lives where he acts in such a way is to confront them with his love and mercy and grace. Yes, he does that through his spirit inside of them, but his favorite way to work has always been through his people. He wants to use you to do that. The putting right of his fallen, broken creation. Yes, he could, with less than a thought, make it all right again, but he wants to use you to do that. You and I are his body, his hands, and his feet. We're his voice. When we go somewhere, he goes there. When we reach out in love, that is Him reaching out in love. You and I are priests. 
So maybe there's something in your life that you're holding on to that you know is wrong. A struggle, a sin, a habit. And you struggle to want to let go of it. You know, we often say, Lord, take my sin from me, just don't take it yet. What if we really believed that we're the hands and the feet and the voice of the Lord? What if we really believed that we're priests, that he is setting the world right one life at a time, and he wants to use us to do it? If we could see ourselves that way, not as sinners who are broken and infected with sin, while that's true, it's forgiven. God looks on us and sees his son and calls us to do his work. So my challenge for you today is to look in a mirror. You could do it literally, or you could do it symbolically, and ask yourself what you see. Do you see what he does? Because everything broken, wrong, sinful in you is covered over. Forgiveness is offered if we accept him as Lord and Savior. My challenge to you today is to look in a mirror and ask him to help you see what he does. I cannot imagine the effect on your life that might have. And one more. If you've never accepted him as Lord and Savior, if you've never gone to him and confessed and repented of your sins and said, Lord, I want to belong to you. I want to be covered by your blood. I want to be forgiven for my sins. I want to be a member of your family. Lord, forgive me and make me yours. I want to challenge you that today is your day. Come and speak to me or Pastor Ben or one of the deacons or a mature believer about it. And we would love to listen, to pray with you, and to help you take those first steps. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the book of Leviticus. We thank you for the joy that comes from learning from your word. This this book that seems so far and foreign to us, Lord, but is filled with truth that we need to hear. Lord, we ask that you would convict and encourage us where we need to be convicted and encouraged. That you would call us to see ourselves as your son and daughter, to see ourselves as you see us. That you would empower us, Lord, to let go of anything that we're holding on to that we ought to let go of. And Lord, we ask that you help us. You empower us. You use us as your hands, your feet, and your voice so that we can truly be the body of Christ. And Lord, finally, we thank you. More than we could ever say, more than we could ever exhaust, we thank you for the gift 
of your son Jesus Christ, the high priest, through whose death and resurrection you have brought forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. In his name we pray. Amen.